Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And welcome to another edition of Spin the Rally Pod. I am Luke Barry, Dirtfish's deputy editor, a new voice to the podcast. But thankfully, I'm joined by somebody you will know. Robert Reed sits opposite me. Robert, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. We know what today is. Today marks 20 years since you won the 2001 World Rally Championship. Does it feel like 20 years ago? I think in some ways it feels like 50 years, and in some ways it feels like two years. I mean, you know, it does seem... A while ago, but, um, you know, in the same token, the memories are still there. You know, it, it was a, a wonderful day. Slightly bittersweet by the fact that we lost Richard four years to the day later. Um, so it's always it's always one of these kind of slightly strange days. But, um, you know, really good to reflect back on, you know, what was a an amazing, um, you know, outcome and something that Richard and I worked towards for... A large number of years and eventually um, succeeded in achieving. How often do people mention the famous moment where he grabs your arm and shouts that you're the best in the world? It must be quite a common guy. Yeah, it, it? it is. It is. But no, it's nice. I mean, you know, I mean, I think you see in those moments, and I think with Rally in particular, you see a lot of that raw emotion. Um, you know, the the guys in single seaters or or racing cars. You know, it's not. It's not so easy in the middle of a competition for somebody to stick a mic or a camera or have an onboard, you know, um, a camera running when there's interaction happening. So I think it's, you know, it's one of the nice things. And, you know, we've all seen moments over the years with various crews. But, uh, you know, it's, it's really nice that, uh, you know, that was what was on Richard's mind at that particular moment. What was on my mind was just getting from the end of the last stage to the final control, checking in, getting rid of the time card, doing all the official stuff. So, you know, whilst everybody kind of thinks the end of the last competitive stage is you've won and that's it, then certainly as a co-driver, there was a fair bit more still to do. Yeah, I think that answer is very typical of most co-drivers. They don't tend to relax until everything's done. But we will get into Rally GB, of course, the famous finale, a little bit later on. Just to start, Robert, well, if I can ask for a bit of context for where you and Richard were before 2001, because obviously this was the first year with, with a new car, but it was your third year with Subaru. And I understand you had a bit of a, a three-year plan to try and win the championship, which you ultimately did. But could you just give us an idea of where you were after the year 2000 heading into 2001? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was a three-year plan. I mean, I think it was a 10-year a plan or an 11-year plan from when I started you know, with, uh, with Richard. But certainly the, the first year at, um, back at ProDrive at Subaru in 99, we probably didn't really realise where we were going to be. You know, we had some good results, we won some events, and it was quite clear at the end of that year that we could, um, you know, we were capable of, of putting together a championship bid. 
2000, um, again, had gone well. The 2000 car was introduced, unfortunately, just for nine events. But, uh, you know, really came in with a bang, was, um, was quicker than we'd had before. And, uh, you know, was a, a step up. And I think, for me personally, uh, not winning the championship in 2000 was uh, a real bitter blow. As much because we, we did what we could in the last round and it wasn't enough. Yeah. Somebody else did more. So, you know, I think that was that was a bitter blow for me. So we regrouped and we came with a new car at the start of 2001, full of hope and expectation. Obviously, the 2000 Impreza was probably one of the most competitive cars you'd ever sat in. Is that fair to say? So going to the new car, what was the initial testing like? And, and did you and Richard feel that it was an improvement on the car you'd had the year before? Um, I, I don't think I can say even on a podcast what Richard's <laughs> first words when he drove the car was. He wasn't, he wasn't as impressed as um, perhaps some people were hoping he would be. Um, no, I think it's fair to say that, you know, and I've read since that ProDrive were slightly disappointed that they had to come with the new car, um, but the models had changed and, you know, there was pressure to, to do so from, from Subaru from Japan. Um, the 2000 car was a good car. We probably hadn't realised all the potential out of it, so it was disappointing that it was retired sort of early in its, in its, um, in its lifespan. The 01 car um, was disappointing, is probably a bit of a strong word, but yeah, it just didn't feel right. The engine didn't feel great to begin with. We had some reliability issues. So it was it was disappointing to start off the year um, kind of a couple of, it felt like a couple of steps back from where we'd finished the year before. Yeah, okay. And for context, obviously, as well, at this time, you had Marcus Grunholm and just won the championship. That's who had beaten Ewan Richard to that title. He was still at Peugeot. I think Didier Oriol had joined, so that was different. But Colin, Carlos, Tommy, they were all in the same team and broadly the same car. So that, I guess, was a bit of a disadvantage for you guys as well. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, you know, developing a new car is always is always a tricky thing. And, you know, I just, when, when you see that whole year, and I know we'll kind of talk in more detail about bits of it, but... You know, we we didn't have the best of, of times at times during the year. But you look at our teammates, you know, you look at Petter and Marco and they, they both had worse years than we had. Well, clearly we, we won, <laughs> so we had a better year. But, you know, even in terms of results and retirements and, and whatever. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of an uphill slog. Yeah, yeah, okay. So Monte Carlo, we'll start at the beginning and start, I guess, at the bottom because... I think was it maybe five or six stages in and you think you were maybe fourth overall someone can correct me on that if I'm wrong you might be able to remember I'm not sure but I think it was around fourth and obviously the car broke down so that was a major disappointment to start the year I guess yeah it was the it was the end of the first leg so coming back into Monte Carlo coming up the hill from on on the motorway just before you turn off to go down into Monte Carlo and it just literally dropped from four cylinders to three cylinders to two cylinders and one cylinder and we we parked it up at the toll booth and and that was it so yeah very disappointing but I mean we'd you know Marco had retired on the run out to the first stage in the morning so I mean it, it was a not a great day for the team um and obviously disappointing to leave the first round with no points 
So up next, of course, as traditional, is Sweden. And this one, to be fair, the pace here was remarkable, actually, particularly after what happened. But I'll let you explain, I guess, how it went wrong to start with. Yeah, well, it, it, was, it was fairly typical for us in Sweden. Stick it in a snowbank early on and then, and then have a storming recovery drive. So I think I've still got frostbite um, scars on my fingers from competing in Sweden and trying to dig cars out of the snow but yeah we just went straight on um kind of up on the skate road in the snow got stuck had to had to dig it out and then we're fighting back and I think um in some ways the the number of fastest times we then did was spurred on by the fact that uh Marco um was desperate to get his fast first fastest time ever on a WRC event and uh, a couple of times he thought he'd done it and then we came along and pipped him by a couple of tenths or something. So I think there was a fairly big... Uh, Richard was taking his... Um, he was taking his motivation from stopping Marco having the fastest time at that point. That's quite interesting to hear because I think... I'm going to go on a slight tangent here, Robert, but I think the relationship between Richard, Marco, yourself and Beef is often forgotten about by a lot of people because you... Obviously, I think a lot of people forget you were, first of all, teammates for that year, but secondly, that you all did seemed to get on really well. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it went back to Persia Challenge. I mean, the first year that I um, did rallies with Richard in 91, Beef was co-driving for a guy called Steve Bennett in the in the challenge. And we um, were just, we were all mates together, you know, amateurs playing it, going rallying, going off to our den in Belgium and having adventures and, you know, doing events all over the UK. So it was, it was a really good time. and. Um, when we progressed, I mean, Beef actually helped us, as did Phil Mills actually, helped us the following year in 92 when we did the national championship, just coming and doing a bit of on-event coordination um, with us, uh, with, with the group NCAR at that time. And I saw a, a video, one of these um, kind of video to to online um, things on on some of the social platforms recently which was the last round of the national championship when we won. And David Williams, who helped Richard and I throughout our career, is there and, and Beef stood there as well in a team jacket as the team coordinator for the day. So yeah, I mean, we went back a long way. And then when Beef started co-driving with Marco, uh, first in the Toyota, obviously, we were all mates and kind of hung out. And then Marco and Beef joined the team for, uh, for 2001. Okay, so tangent averted, back on track to the season. Next was obviously Portugal, quite a famous rally, mainly for how, I don't know what the right word to use here is, because my immediate reaction was to swear. <laughs> quite a torrid, sodden event. Have you ever competed in anything that was as much of a, a mud bath, I guess, as that rally? Um, it, was pretty, it was pretty bad. I mean, it was survival. I can't remember where we finished, but it was it was survival. I, I've got it down as fourth overall. Again, yeah. somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. But. Yeah, no, it could could easy be, but you know, I remember um, one particular stage, a repeated stage, you know, and it was um, we we're waiting to start the stage because so many cars had gone off the road, and Natalie Barrett at the time with um, with Roger Freeman. Had, had gone off the road and they were walking out the stage and they both looked like some, you know, people that have been through like uh, the most extreme SES assault course you can ever imagine. 
I mean, absolutely drenched from head to toe and covered in mud. I mean, it, it was it was really horrible conditions. What's that like to sort of compete in as opposed to any other rally? Because you've got the job to do still and everybody's facing the same thing. But when you're in that situation, particularly as you were, when you needed to get some points on the board, how hard can you afford to push, I guess? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can't force it. But also you can't just say, oh, this is really tough. I won't bother on this event and wait till the next one. So, you know, I think it's it's always a balance. And, you know, at that point, third event in not many points on the board, I think we'd have been throwing caution to the wind to some degree, um, but safe in the knowledge that, you know, another zero score wouldn't have wouldn't have been very helpful at that at that point. But, you know, in terms of those conditions, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I can think of umpteen different events. I mean, back to doing Asia Pacific when, you know, the mud seems even more slippy out there than it does uh, in Portugal or in the UK. But certainly, you know, I mean, Richard was no stranger to a muddy, wet, horrible Rally GB. Um, so, you know, it's certainly conditions you had to be able to survive in. Yeah, okay. So Portugal, obviously, Tommy Mackinnon won that round. He had also won the Monte, so that, I think, gave him 20 points at this stage. You had about three, so you were already on a bit of a back foot, but the way the point system works, of course, then, was the top six positions that scored. And the next round, I think you were seventh in Spain, so you just missed out on, on a point. A after that event, obviously, you're four rounds in. There's still plenty to go, but can that, does the head drop do you get worried that this might not happen for you or you're always optimistic that there will be a turnaround at some stage I think there's I mean Rich's focus was always to win championships so yes of course that is you know the big thing that you're concentrating on but there's other stuff you know there's developing the car there's setting fastest times there's winning rallies so I don't I don't think it ever gets to the point of you know throwing your hands in the air and saying you know this is not going to work let's concentrate on on next year I mean, Richard was, a couple of times people, you know, said to Richard over his career, you've been really lucky, you've always ended up in the best car. And he was always very quick to correct them and say, well, do you not think that part of my skill as a driver was making sure I was in the right place at the right time and that I had the skill to develop the car and make it the best car? So, you know, I think that was also something that, that motivated Richard, you know, working with the engineers, working with the team, and just really trying to get the car where we wanted it. And we knew, you know, Rich was the type of driver that um, he, it wasn't about beating people for him. It was about doing the best job he could do. And he knew that if he got to the end of a stage, having done a perfect job, he would be fastest. If he got to the end of an event, having done a perfect job, he would win the event. So I think it was about, you know, improving himself constantly and knowing that you know he'd had a, a bad four rallies but didn't make him a driver yeah yeah that's a fair point because he, he has always seemed like a driver to me anyway i wasn't around the wrc at this time but he, he would find a way to compete almost with himself rather than being motivated by having to beat somebody else and that is quite rare in a rally driver then and now yeah i mean yes and i mean it, i think you know in different sports and you know, different motorsport disciplines, but also in, in other different sports, you know, you'll get different people with different motivations, you know, whether they're motivated, you know, specifically to beat others or to be the best, 
And I think, you know, Rich's motivation to be the best was one of the driving forces because it would mean that he would debrief win, lose or draw. And he would stay until, you know, God knows when at night on a test in order to improve because there was always improvements to be made. You know, rather than, you know, getting to the end of the event, having won it and go, well, that's fine. I beat everybody else. I don't need to debrief. Um, and, and you know, that's kind of two extreme um, kind of, uh, you know, sides to the, the, the situation. Um, the downside of competing against yourself was that people tend, who are like that, tend to be perfectionists. And with perfectionism, you can tie yourself up in knots and never be content. And, uh, you know, there has to be a happy medium where you say, okay, that's enough. And then you just, you go and you compete. Do you think your working style was was similar to Richard's? Were you also, would you consider yourself a perfectionist? And you think that's why the partnership worked? Or was it a little bit like chalk and cheese? Um, A bit of both, probably. I mean, I'm, I'm more... Let's just get the job done. Mm. Um, but I could understand and appreciate where Richard was coming from, and I could work with that. And you know, people people have been critical of of Richard over the years. You know, he was really difficult to work with. He was this. He was that. He was the next thing. And he wasn't when you understood his motivation. But if you didn't understood or wouldn't let yourself understand his motivation, then yes, you could. And you've just got to look at pace notes I mean we had 28 different severities of corners we would you know he would I always used to hate it when he said oh I've had an idea with the notes I'd say oh for goodness sake because I knew that was a whole year of pain changing the whole you know that particular aspect of the note system in order to incorporate a new call or something new um, throughout that year and you'd get to the end of 12 months and breathe a sigh of relief and think oh at least we can have some consistency for a while and two events later you get oh I've had an idea about the notes system again and you know our notes continually evolved until the day we stopped and I'm sure had we continued beyond they would have continued to evolve again and and that's not the same for some other people you know some people will get to okay this is consistent you know you're not trying any less hard but you're probably just not looking for the edge in the same way. And a lot of that is down to personality and motivation. Yeah, okay. So we'll, we'll move back into 2001. We have a nice little diversity here, which is good. I think that is interesting. Um, Argentina was next. And this was probably your first big result of the season because it was second, but it was behind Colin. And is it fair to say this one was kind of one on the first stage when Colin took such a massive lead at everybody? Was that kind of how it went? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we all knew that that was Colin's tactic. You know, if he could get a jump on people on stage one, and, and I can't remember the exact figures, but, you know, 20-something seconds out of everybody on stage one, and then we ended up um, second behind him, a couple of seconds less than he'd taken out of us or roundabout what he'd taken us out of us in the first stage. So it was pretty eeksy-peeksy after that first stage. But, you know, to actually take that time back was always going to be really difficult. Um, Argentina was an event that Richard really enjoyed, you know, went well on. I can't remember why we got caught out, but it sounds like everybody got caught out on that on that first stage. You know, Colin just decided that 
that's where he was going to attack and he was going to take a risk there and it paid off yeah so that was obviously the first podium of the year you went and doubled up on that on the next round I think in Cyprus it was Cyprus just checking my notes but this one was kind of a rally marred by road order tactics and that would become a bit of a theme I think for the rest of the season with where you position yourself at the end of day one because of course back then it's not like you have now where the person in first starts at the back if you led the rally after the first day you were on at the start at the head of the pack on the next day yeah I mean I would I would kind of um, kick back a bit there and argue that it wasn't necessarily marred by but you know maybe it was enhanced by I don't know I mean certainly for me you know what I enjoyed about rallying in those days um, was it was tactical amongst other things Um, and it was you know, not necessarily just driving flat out. You had to think about what you were doing. You had to, you know, make choices of a large number of tires. It was less controlled than than it than it is nowadays in terms of, you know, homogenized as, as it is now. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was always a factor. There was always a lot of calculations going on and trying to work out. And you know, maybe you would try and drop some time. Maybe you would think okay I can I can go ahead and you know it probably wasn't until the next year at at Peugeot where you know number one on the door so we end up um, running first in you know the first event and for quite a few events during our time at Peugeot we're first on the road and you get good at it Mm. and I think there was you know if everybody talks about regrets and what you might have done differently I think if we'd kind of realized that you can get good at it rather than um you know try to play tactics just got on with it then it would be interesting to see how things worked out yeah because it's interesting because i think in this particular instance with cyprus as well you had the lead at the end of the second day but you had colin who had a i don't know i can't remember if he dropped back or if he was already behind you but he increased the gap between you anyway and he just ended up coming past you on the on the third day so it's interesting to hear that you reckon you could have refined that craft because we see it now with drivers like Sebastian Ogier and how many times he just has to drive at the front and he's, he's a lot better at it than most of his rivals are. Yeah, I mean, the, the more you do it, the, the better you get at it. I mean, Cyprus was always a, it was always a difficult event, just low average speed, you know, very gravelly roads, not much air coming in the roof fence of the car. You know, it wasn't a particularly pleasant it was like sitting in a overly hot sauna for three days and trying to trying to work at the same time so um yeah it was it was always it was all always a tough event but um you know at that point in the season you know second place was was certainly better than we'd fared earlier on yeah it was an important renaissance so obviously, but obviously this ended up being the start of colin's real attack because to me, and I don't know if you'd agree with this, but looking back at it now, the season kind of felt like it had about three thirds. So there was like the Tommy portion at the start of the year, Colin in the middle, and then probably you and Marcus, to be fair, for the second half of the year. Marcus's start was just even worse than, than yours had been. So at this point, though, you are gathering momentum. So it, it kept you in the race, essentially. Yeah, I mean, you know, the car's getting better. Um, we are understanding more about it. Um, we are you know, able to be more competitive. So, yeah, I mean, I still think that, you know, I'm not sure, yes, you've always got one eye on the championship, but, you know, you 
I said before, you, you can't force things. And even with rally wins, I always say, you got to put yourself in a position where you can win and it might or might not work in your favor. And and that's just the that's just the way of it. You know, you got to do what you can and sometimes you get the rub of the green, sometimes you don't get the rub of the green and um, it works out in your favor and sometimes it doesn't. Speaking of not working out in favor, we do have two more rounds to talk about on gravel. First was Acropolis, the next was Safari and Unfortunately for you two, it was another pair of, of DNS. I think it was a transmission in the Acropolis and then suspension in Kenya. Is that ring a bell? Yeah, I think it was prop shaft. Okay. Because um, we'd had a problem with prop shafts in Cyprus and we'd, we'd managed to get away with it and still keep the result. And then in, in Greece, it was um, towards the end. It was one of the, the stages on the last day from memory. Um, yeah, it all seemed to be going fine. Um, Greece was always an event that we could um, we could do well on. So I think going into particularly you know Cyprus, Greece, Safari, we would have thought, okay, there's a fair chance of winning at least one of them and being on the podium in all three. Uh, and that you know started well enough in in Cyprus. Didn't really continue. Uh, obviously, with retirement in Greece. And then Kenya was just a complete disaster. Uh, I mean, they, the team worked out fairly quickly what the, what the problem was. But, you know, Petter had the same problem. Um, I think Toshi had the same problem as well. Um, but for us on the, on the first stage, we were parked up at the side and that was it. And it always seems worse than Safari because... It's a, certainly in those days, really, really long event, lots of preparation. Um, we were doing quite a lot of testing, so you were there quite a lot. It was later in the year than it'd usually been. Usually we went straight from Sweden yeah. to Safari. So, um, you know, it was a place that, you know, we, we managed to win there twice. And first WRC win as well. So, you know, it was somewhere that we'd, we'd obviously earmarked as... Uh, as being somewhere we could bag a haul of points and came away empty-handed. Yeah, it wasn't looking too great at this point, but obviously, how much were you thinking about the next year? Because, of, well, we'll get into it, I guess, in a couple of rounds' time, but at this stage, are you thinking about, is Subaru the right place for us to be? Is there a better opportunity elsewhere, or is this too early in the season to be thinking about these negotiations? No, I think it, it was starting around then. I can't remember when the original advances came I mean we were we were approached rather than went looking at, at the time of the initial approach so um, yeah I mean it's always in in your mind as to as to whether you are in the right place I mean Peugeot was uh, you know as you say particularly towards the end of the year very dominant with uh, with Marcus um, so the temptation was always there to look around and 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 would would been at that point at Subaru coming up for three years. So um, yeah, I think the the results definitely play on your mind and uh, you know affect those decisions. Do you remember what things were like sort of behind the scenes at this time? Because. I know Richard was always a very calculated driver and no professional athlete will ever 
look at a situation and, and just think they're done because you're just not wired like that even if the press and everybody else is thinking it but after this rally you're I can't remember what the points gap was but you're a long way behind was there a change in approach after that or was it everything just the same but some of the results picked up if you get what I'm asking yeah I think it was every, everything was the same and the results just picked up and you're absolutely right I mean you don't you know people have said you know you know at what point were you almost giving up and well you don't give up but also you just you're in such a bubble and I think you don't realize until you look back now and whether that bubble is um you know blind faith or calculated um uh, you know decision on on the way things is going to go but you've got to believe you've got to believe that you you're moving forward and that you can you can do something because you know, it's, I'm not a big believer in bad luck. I kind of believe you make your own luck, but sometimes it it does seem a bit uh, a bit out of the blue when things keep happening all the time. But um, you know, you've just got to keep pushing, and you've just got to keep relying on the fact that you know everybody's going to have zero scores, and if it happens uh, at the right time when you're scoring points at the end of the year, then everything's possible. So next up was Rally Finland, where, of course, the year before you'd had quite a, a big and famous accident. Second overall here was actually a very, very good result. And I think Richard's pace in Finland is probably often forgotten, particularly now when you've got the likes of Chris Meek and Elvin Evans winning in Finland. And there's the, there's the statistic that they're the only British drivers to have done that. But Richard came close a lot of times to doing it and nearly did yeah. in 01 as well. Yeah, and I mean, even 99, you know I mean? A lot of people forget 98 was the first time we went to Finland. So, you know, 99 was only our second time in Finland. And we were, I don't know, around about 10 seconds or whatever it was behind Juha at the end, having never been any further back than that the whole time. Um, so, yeah, again, it's, you know, it's fast, it's um, precise. You know, it's everything that kind of... Um, you know, Richard was was good at his good pace notes, um, so it did always it did always work. And I think you know, again, if we're if we're kind of looking back, you know, that two thousand shunt, I think had we settled for second behind Marcus, then we could very well have gone on and won the championship. Um, but that zero points at, at that point in the year was kind of what what did for us. Yeah. So, you know, that's always going to be in the back of your mind. I mean, you know, I think 2001 Finland, I think I'm right in saying we were fastest on the last stage to jump from third to second. Uh, and the last stage was on Empoya. Yeah. So, I mean, that just kind of shows that, um, you know, we certainly had the pace uh, in, in, in Finland. And as you say, I mean, you know, to beat Finns in Finland is is difficult. And hats off to everybody that's that's done it. Certainly, certainly one of the ones on my bucket list that I would have quite liked to have won. We can't tempt you back to do it. No, <laughs> year coming. I'd be too much of a handicap now. <laughs> Just to pick up on something you said there as well, in reference to the two thousand accident. Obviously, we're looking at this all with benefit of hindsight. But was Richard the kind of driver that was taking those lessons on <laughs> at the time? So you mentioned the drop points with the accident. Was was he already aware of that and thinking, right, I can't do that again. This is where I need to improve, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I mean, he 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 was his harsh his own harshest critic. So yeah, I mean, he was incredibly hard on himself for, you know, for making a mistake. I think 
I think we actually led the event um, momentarily at that point yeah. because we'd taken enough out of Marcus on that stage to go into the, the lead of the event. And we I remember clearing the stage on the radio and Simon Cole, our engineer, um, when I said, you know, we've we've crashed, we're out. He said, yeah, we've got your time. That's great. Well done, guys. Give us a shout, 2Ks down the road. Like, no, Simon, we've crashed. We're off the road. No, 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 but I've seen your time. Yes, we crashed over the flying finish. The car is destroyed. That's it. Oh. So, you know, I mean, I think there was, even for the team, there was just kind of like an expectation that we were going to haul Marcus in or certainly have a good fight from there, you know, there to the end. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, um, there was a bit of ambition, I think, in that in the speed into that corner that uh, didn't quite marry up with how much it tightened. So moving from one fast rally to another, New Zealand, very different in profile, but equally fast, but a very big weekend for your championship, Robert, because obviously, famously now, everybody looks at that as the one victory you took, but it also had ramifications for what was happening next year because things were sort of progressing behind the scenes with contracts. Yeah, they were, and we actually... Um, when we went and did the shakedown for New Zealand, we drove back to the hotel with our engineer, with Simon, and we told him on the way back that we were leaving. And uh, so we, we'd, yeah, we'd made our mind up. It wasn't public knowledge at that point. Um, and I think it wouldn't be for another couple of rallies. And, and it was interesting, um, his view, which was, okay, um, I was kind of expecting that, and actually I'm going to leave too. And uh, Simon went to work in, in Formula One. So he's now with uh, Mercedes Formula One. So, um, yeah, it was it, it, it was a big weekend. And it was kind of, you know, I almost feel slightly emotional about it um, that we had decided to move on, but we still had a job to do. And I think, you know, that showed that the focus, even though we'd, we'd told our engineer what was happening before the rally started, that didn't change the focus of, you know, what we needed to do to, to go and win the event. It might sound obvious to ask now, and I'm sure it's been sort of said elsewhere, but what were the key reasons for deciding to jump ship? Obviously, we talked about it already, the, the rise in, in Persia, but was there anything wrong with, with where you were, or was it just a sense of another opportunity that was too good to pass up on? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's always euros or dollars or whatever is, is getting waved in front of your nose. I think it's you know, in some ways, we Richard and I have both grown up post Group B, but kind of watching that whole kind of era and thinking, "Wow, Peugeot is just an you know an iconic brand in rallying, and it would be great to to work with them and drive with Peugeot at some point." Because you know, I think as a driver, you don't want to necessarily be defined by the car you've always driven. Um, and you want to be in, you know, you want to experience other other things. You know, we were we were both okay. It wasn't a prime factor, but we were both quite keen to brush up schoolboy French. But then we realised that the mechanics all wanted to speak English, so that didn't really that didn't really work as a reason. But um, you know, the Persia when you looked at it, I mean, we'd competed against Marcus as far back as '97 in Portugal, I think. Yeah. So, you know, we knew we could beat him. You know, he wasn't 
sort of so much better as it were um, and the car was obviously the Persia was obviously very good um, you know from what we'd seen it had a very strong engine so I think there was a number of factors plus being disillusioned where we were um, just because you know the, the, the goal was to win the championship and that didn't really look like it was it was going to happen yeah okay so New Zealand the event itself another slight tactical battle with with Colin wasn't it this one but obviously you came out on top this time was there anything about that weekend that was and it sounds like a cliche question to ask you but was there anything about it that was better than other weekends or was it just that the result ended up going the way that arguably other rallies could have done yeah I think I think you're probably right I mean (laughs) It, it was it was always interesting going to the long haul events. They always seemed more fun. You went earlier. You had a couple of nights out. It was, you know, you were more relaxed. New Zealand, particularly for a Scot, is actually feels quite homely. Um, the roads are great. They, you know, the people are great. So it was always a really good place to go, and I think that that sets you up well. You interact with other drivers because you're there for longer. So you know, I think the, um, <clears throat> I think the crack, as they would say in Ireland, between Richard and Colin was probably ongoing, certainly all the way through the recce. You know, just as to to what tactics they were they were going to play. And you know, at the end of the first day, we'd had a a, a bit of a technical problem, but it wasn't. Um, you know, it didn't slow us that much, but we decided that uh, it wasn't in our interest to go out from the front and make a break. So we ended, I think it was 47 seconds or something behind Colin at the end of the first day. And and the Colin and Richard were having to go at each other. Richard was saying, oh, you've not got a big enough lead McRae. And McRae was like, oh, you'll never catch me, Bumsy. Um, and so there's a bit of that going on. First stage the next day, we were in the lead. Um, and and we we got 42 or 43 or something up on them. And then it was role reversal the 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 next night at the at the end of the day, you know. Colin saying, oh, that's never enough. I'll, I'll whip your ass tomorrow, Burnsy. Um, but the last day was predominantly in Maramarua Forest, which rutted rather than cleaned. So... We were confident that that was enough. I think Richard said he, he he the minimum that he wanted was forty. If he didn't have forty, he'd rather drop back. Um, and we end up with forty-two. So we were on kind of marginal on our calculation. Um, and Colin got with two or three stages to go, got within fifteen, and made a mistake, and went off the road and lost some time. Now he will argue or Colin would argue that he was going to catch us and Richard would argue that he wasn't going to catch us and unfortunately we'll never we'll never fully know but you know staying on the road is part of the part of the game and the result is is you know what the result was I wasn't going to touch upon it until a bit later but the Colin and Richard dynamic obviously defined the end of the season in particular but it was a big thing at the time for particularly UK rally fans because here you had almost two completely polarising characters one from Scotland one from England and they were both at the very top of their game fighting for the world championship but it often seems to get portrayed that there was some 
massive bitterness where really in reality it was just jovial fun for the two of them yeah yeah I mean there was you know I think I think Richard was a bit of an unlikely success in rallying you know first generation rallying um, his parents were not particularly wealthy (laughs) and he got there through a lot of hard work um, meeting the right people Clearly, having the best co-driver um, <laughs> goes without saying. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think I think the if you'd if you'd looked at how the history books might have been written before Richard, it's you know, Colin was there, Alistair was coming along, and that's just how it was going to be. And and so I think Richard kind of upset the form book a little bit in 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 what he did, and even though he kind of had some good performances early on as a lot of people never really thought that he had what it took but you know you look at that 99 2000-2001 I mean you know most number of fastest times three years running so the speed was was there and it's often something that I think is forgotten about with Richard that you know he says oh he was really consistent and he picked up points and you know if Colin crashed he would win and all these sorts of things, but that wasn't that wasn't always the wasn't always the case. But I think you're right. There was a bit of this kind of English Scottish, and I was obviously stuck in the middle um, with uh, with with that one being the the Scot co-driving for the Englishman. But I think it was also it was the flamboyance versus the calculation. And the, there are a few people that would say, you know, I'll support any of the Brits that are winning. But I think most people would be in that I really like Richard because he's a thinking driver or I really like Colin because of how sideways he goes. So they were quite polarising from a fan perspective. So I think it's only natural that that polarisation kind of continued over in the in the media and and what people thought. But, you know, it would have been unusual for us at that time not to have dinner at least one night with Colin on the recce. I mean, I'd, I'd known Colin for years before I knew Richard. So, you know, we'd, we'd been, I can't remember if it was that year in New Zealand or the year before, we went to South Africa for Robbie Head's wedding. And Colin and, and Alison and Richard and Zoe, so it must have been 2001, um, rented a house together in Camps Bay in, in um, Cape Town and, like, stayed together, stayed with each other in the house for, for 10 days. Now, they probably were closer to falling out or doing something nasty to each other after 10 days of living in the same house than they ever were, you know, rallying against each other for years. But no, they got on, they got on really well. I assume there must have been, as there are with all drivers, I guess, at that level, but there would have been a massive amount of respect between the two of them for what each, each other were doing as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, Colin would, would often come up and say, fair play, Burnsy, that was a, that was a good time. You know, or well done, and even even when we won, you know, Colin was home in Scotland, but he was one of the first people on the phone. So yeah, there was there was a, a huge amount of mutual respect. Okay, so we'll move on from New Zealand <coughs> and we go to San Remo next, which was a little bit of a crash back down to earth, <laughs> literally. I literally, guess. yeah. What are your memories <coughs> of that weekend? Was that a, a bit of a bitter blow that one to swallow? It was. I mean, <coughs> we changed we. Had a tire delaminate on the way to the first stage, 
changed it before the first stage and had another one delaminate in the stage. So it's kind of one of these things. What what can you do? Um, <clears throat> you know, Pirelli had been really good for us in a lot of events. That was one event it didn't work out. So, you know, you're there as a, a partnership, as a whole team. So you just got to suck it up, really. I think we've got too much else to add there, have we? <laughs> no, I mean, we were we were back at the swimming pool drinking beers in uh, in San Remo by the time the cars were at stage three, I think. There are at least worse places in the world to be having some time off, I guess. Yeah, it was sunny. <laughs> Corsica next, another Mediterranean tarmac rally. This one, fourth overall, I think in the end, you can correct me with this, Robert, but did you end up passing Petter in the final stage for, for extra points? So yeah. That was, yeah. Was that a manufactured thing or was that a pace, ver- just complete driver versus driver? No, I mean, I, you know, we're, we're entered as a team. Petter had had an even more disastrous season than we had. You know, I think, I can't remember the ins and outs, but I wouldn't have been surprised if Petter had suggested it rather than, you know, being told and, and done it against his will. I mean, that's just, you know, every <clears throat> every championship win, <clears throat> excuse me, will have some story behind it of, you know, people saying, oh, well, if this hadn't happened, you wouldn't have won. If that hadn't happened, you wouldn't have won. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's our story in this one. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, the points mattered at the end of the day. Um, if we hadn't had them, we would have had to win. Yeah. And GB even with Colin going out, not impossible. Um, might actually have been, uh, might actually have been less pressure mm. because having to finish third or fourth, wherever it was, was a lot of pressure. Um, whereas just going to win on an event that we knew well, um, you know, might have actually been, in some ways, more relaxing. Yeah. So either way, it was quite an important weekend championship-wise again because Tommy obviously had his, his massive accident. I can't remember precisely, but I'm pretty sure the top three was filled with non-championship contenders. So you, you yeah. were the top of, of that pile. Yeah. So there were important points secured. And as you said, that made a difference at the end of the year. Yeah. But we had Australia next. Another good rally in the end, actually second. But <laughs> there's a, obviously a famous incident at the end of the first day as well. It's probably cost McRae a, a chance at winning. Do you think... Do you think that is looking back one of the key moments that sort of swayed the season almost? Because if he, if he hadn't have had the the issue, he could well have been much further up in Australia and in a much stronger position for for GB. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's probably umpteen different you know things that you can say. You know, if if our car didn't break down in Monte Carlo, if we didn't get in a snowbank in Sweden, you know, there would have been different factors. But yeah, I mean, it it was a a really odd situation. I mean, at that point, there was a lot of talk about road position and the organisers in Australia um, came up with their own system to try and kind of mitigate against it, but also add some extra razzmatazz to it. Um, We were, you know, in our briefing before we left the UK, it was hammered home to us how important that moment was. In the briefing before the event, it was hammered home. John Spiller, the team manager, literally took the drivers by the scruff of the neck and made sure they were there on time. Um, I don't know what the what the Colin situation was, but he arrived late, and the decision had been 
had been made by that point. Yeah, I, I should point out for context actually because I forgot to mention it. Essentially, this was I think the end of the first leg, wasn't it? There was a, a road order selection and Colin arrived late, so he had to then start first on the road for the next day and was denied the chance of, of choosing position. But obviously for you, you were second and it was again behind Marcus, so that didn't really matter to you, did it? Because he at this point, he wasn't really, in fact, he wasn't in the fight, I don't think, mathematically even by then. So. No, I mean, it, it didn't matter, but it did. I mean, you know, you've got to remember that's six points to ten points. Yeah, fair the, point. The way, yeah. the way the championship points were at that point. You know, there was a big bonus for for actually winning. Okay, so we go into the season finale, and this is where we get a bit more detail. I think this is what everybody probably wants to hear about. It's what we all remember. You were in the fight. There was Colin was at the head of the field. You were a few points back. It, it essentially was was anybody of any of four drivers for the taking. You had Tommy and Carlos, but it realistically was between you, Richard, Colin, and Nicky because. Of your experience I guess on that home rally but in the lead up to that can you remember anything that had sort of more hype and, and interest from from I guess the wider non-rallying public than you had for that weekend? Um, I think it was exasperated for us because there was a contractual battle going on at the same time so it was huge amounts of pressure. Um, rally GB always was huge amounts of pressure just because of the interest I think I'm right in saying there was a picture of a World Rally car on the front page of the Times three out of four days of the event. You know, I mean, we were getting more column inches than Damon had in winning Formula One World Championship in in '96. So it was, yeah, it was it was a really big thing. It was a really big thing for for rallying, never mind British rallying, um, to have this this battle going on. Um, we knew what we had to do. Interestingly, I don't, and and not being arrogant in saying this, but I don't remember thinking much about Tommy and Carlos. You know, it was it was Richard Collin. That was the that was seemed to be the focus, um, and um, we knew what McRae's tactic would be. He'd try and do what he did in Argentina. Um, so we knew we couldn't let that happen. Um, but also we knew that it was a long event and you know as long as we were within a handful of seconds then then that was always going to be good and not letting him pull away and uh, you know the first he took a couple of seconds out of the of us in the first stage in Cardiff and then the first forest stage he took a few and then we took a tenth back or something basically matched him and then the fourth stage um, we passed a steaming wreck at the side of the road. <laughs> Before we get into that, I just wanted to touch a little bit on the psychology of sort of around the rally as well, because you and I have spoken about it before for, for something else, about how Richard essentially made sure that Colin could see him having a conversation with his sports psychologist. So there was a lot of this going on, because obviously the, the two of them, as we've touched upon already, had a little bit of this psyche going on anyway, but... The stakes could not have been higher than they were that weekend. No, and I think I think the interesting thing with Colin is that for those of us that knew him, he wasn't necessarily how he liked to come across. So, you know, he he was the type of guy who, you know, he liked setting a fastest time in Bursey and Monte Carlo without having wrecked the stage that year. You know, he liked this um, image that he never did any physical training. 
He liked the image, his pace notes were simple and he didn't really have to put much effort in, but he put a lot of effort in. Um, whereas Richard was the other way around, you know, Richard was was the type of guy who was putting maximum effort in all the time. And uh, yeah, there was, in fact, the stage before, I'm not saying it's the reason that Colin crashed and we went on to win the championship, but we were stopped at the side of the road having a conversation with Richard, sports psychologist. And the conversation was probably about the weather. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's sports psychologists can't really do much tweaking once the event starts. All the work's done beforehand. Um, but, you know, Richard felt that uh, being seen to be putting much more effort in than he felt Colin would put was a psychological advantage. Was there anything different about his demeanour, I guess, that weekend? Because there was, there was a lot on the line and it, it's probably fair to say it was your best shot at that point of winning the championship, which you ultimately managed to do. But did he seem in any way different or distracted or even phased by it all? Or was it just the exact same approach and the exact same sort of relaxation for the um, rally? Yeah, I mean, he was, he was intense. Um, he refused to do media interviews at the shakedown, which caused a bit of a bit of a stushy. Um, he just wanted to concentrate on what was going on. I mean, we had our manager there the whole weekend because they were trying to sort out some contractual stuff. So that was distracting. We stayed in a different hotel from the team because he didn't want to be distracted with all the stuff that was going on. So yeah, it was it was a strange weekend. Very strange weekend. But then we had, you know, some friends there and some family there and it, it was in some ways it was a nice weekend because of that. That um so Dario Franchitti and his brother Marino were were there. I think McDoon was there as well from memory and you know, a few others that had come along just to kind of support the support the cause. Um so it was yeah, it was it it was different. It was definitely a different weekend. We'll get on to the uh, Franchitti brothers in, in a few minutes, I'm sure. <laughs> But stage four, you mentioned it, you passed, as you called it, the steaming wreck of, of Colin's car. The next junction down, you and Richard obviously have a moment of your own. But is that purely just because it's the shock of suddenly knowing the position you're in? Because at this point, obviously, Carlos is way back and, and Tom was already out of the rally. Yeah, I think I think in the end car, I say to him, concentrate. And he says, you concentrate. So, you know, I think it was just, as you say, a realisation that... Um, that Colin was out and he clearly wasn't going anywhere after that. Um, there was, I think, a bit of concern over, you know, if he was okay because it was a big shunt. Um, and it was then you kind of reset your your brain, reset your mind into, okay, well, now what we have to do is finish in, you know, this position. Um, the interesting thing was that we weren't as as dominant, you know, Colin and Richard, you would think going into a dogfight in GB on Pirelli's on an event that they know well they would have been head and shoulders above everyone else but Marcus was actually quicker than everybody and I think Didier was even up there at the beginning as well so, you know I've certainly read something um, that that uh, had rattled Colin and he you know, he was certainly phased by the fact that he wasn't 
as quick as he as he thought he would be against everybody. Um, I don't remember it rattling Richard particularly, but the the irony of it is that when McRae went out, we still had to do the same thing as we've been doing because yeah. there were still people ahead of us. And, you know, Marcus, Harry, um, these guys, I mean, I think Alistair was up there as well, wasn't he? So, you know, we can, you know, we still had to, we still had a job to do um, that wasn't particularly easy. And it wasn't an easy event. I mean, I often gauge these events by how many times coming out of a service I go in the car to the out control as opposed to walk to the out control. And I think I walk to the out control every service because when you walk to the out control, you can put your card on the table when the car comes you know, to the control rather than having to get out the car and go and put your card on the table. So you save yourself 10 or 15 seconds sometimes. Um, yeah, and I think I walked to the out control every time. There was always, you know, the last few seconds of the minute we were getting to time controls. And we had some hassles. We we did, you know, two stages in the dark on the first night with no map light because the guys have forgotten to put the map light in. Um, I had a mini mag light torch tie wrapped to my thumb. Um, so, you know, there was a whole load of things that could easily have gone really, really wrong that uh, that didn't or that we managed to mitigate as best we can and get through it all. There was obviously that incident, I, th- I can't remember which morning it was, I think it was the, the penultimate leg where the car wouldn't start in, in Park Fermi as well, which is just yeah. exactly precisely what you don't need in that situation. Yeah, by that time Richard was an expert at changing spark plugs on a boxer engine, <laughs> which as you can imagine when they're pointing at the chassis legs isn't the, isn't the easiest thing, but we'd, we'd done it a couple of times during the year. So... Um, yeah, it just, it's, you know, looking back at it, it all just seemed, it was like, oh, here we go again, rather than, oh, panic. You know, it was just, okay, we've got enough time, let's just sort this out and head down and very, very in this bubble. You know, there's there's lots of things that were probably going on round about that um, we were just, you were just kind of blanking out. You know, you didn't have the capacity to deal with all that as well as what was going on on the event. And what was the atmosphere like in the team as well at this point? Because you mentioned there was a situation bobbing with contracts and stuff, but that did that take the shine off what you were achieving, the fact that there was this sort of cloud hanging over what you were doing, or was that at the back of your mind throughout the rally? I think it's always at the back of your mind, but, you know, I mean, we were quite clear, if we get a chance to win the championship, we go and win the championship and sort it out after that. Um, the team were generally really good. You know, there's a couple of incidences of uh, flashpoints, but nothing, nothing too much. You know, I think everybody was in that same situation. I mean, at the end of the day, nobody wanted not to win. So you know, just the the common goal at that point to to win was the overriding factor, and uh, we just all got on with it. And just for I guess for context as well, in case anyone doesn't know, that was the stipulation in the in the sort of issue, wasn't it? In that if you had won the championship, then your contract, or that's what the negotiation was, is that Subaru were then going to try and commit you to 2002 win. Yeah, if we else. if we won the championship, we had to stay. If we didn't win the championship, we could go. 
So we're already committed to going. Yeah. Um, you know, and ultimately I wasn't party to the to the final negotiation that allowed both those things to happen. But um, that was that was some weeks after the event. So the final day of the rally there, you're in the situation you, you need to be. So you've only got a few stages left, but of course in rallying it's never just a few stages, particularly when you're in that situation. What was that morning like, I guess, on, on the edge of, of glory, so to speak? Was it, were you nervous? Did, was anything feel different or was it just another day at the office for you? So this is probably going to sound a bit strange, but for me, I woke up um, anxious because I didn't know if in winning the championship I would want to go and do it again or whether that was the dream. You know, the dream had always been win the championship. So what happens when you win the championship? It's a bit like the old expression of the dog chasing the bus. You know, when the bus stops at the bus stop and the dog catches it up and it's then got a very blank look on its face because it doesn't know what to do next. Um, and certainly for me, there was a large part of that. I was like, I have literally worked for, you know, more than a decade to get to this moment. What happens when I achieve it? Do I wake up tomorrow morning going, right, and I want to be a farmer or a whatever? Um, or do I wake up the next morning going, this is brilliant, I want to do this again? Thankfully, it was, this is brilliant, I want to do it again. But, you know, it's just strange how some of these things go through your mind. And and it's almost as that, it's that situation, you know, even, you know, sitting having some food the night before, everybody's, sit, everybody's thinking the same thing, which is, don't mention it, don't talk about it. You know, so everybody's trying not to talk about it. And in trying not to talk about it, invariably, you end up talking about it. Or saying something, or so there was quite a lot of edginess, definitely about it. It was it is quite strange how you won it, I guess, as well, because it was this massive four way or two way how you look at it, but it was a big title fight anyway. But it ended up being over after just a few stages. So all you could sort of do at that point was was lose it, really. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right, and um, we had, you know, two and a half days to lose it at that point. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, and you know, I'm sure both Colin and Richard would, would agree, it would have been much better had it been a fight all the way through, you know, and, and both will believe that they would have come out on top. Uh, unfortunately, that wasn't the way it was decided, but um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a, long, a long event. So obviously things did come good in, the, good in the end, as we touched on at the start of the podcast, and of course everybody knows, you won the World Championship. We all know what happened at the finish line. Talk to us about what happened on the way back from Margam to Cardiff, because I understand there was a bit of a bit of fun on the M4. Yeah, well, I was I was on the phone to Fred Gallagher as clerk of the course because there was some traffic and just trying to say, Fred, you need to cancel road penalties. What happens if we're late? And he's like, Don't worry, don't worry, and doing all the co-driver stuff. And then and then I think from memory. I can't remember if we felt a slight nudge from behind or it was the other way around, but the Franchitti brothers in, in Richard's road car were, um, were uh, had, had caught up with us on the motorway. So there was a wee bit of drag racing went on and uh, a bit of uh, jostling for position, shall we say. Oh, at 77 miles an hour, I assume. 
Well, 70. <laughs> you know, we're not, not taking a risk with the threshold at that point. No, that's a good point. See, so you get to the end of the rally, you celebrate a success. Did it ever sink in? And if it did, how long did it take for you to realise that you'd both achieved what you, what you had achieved? I think the next day, so we, we went down to London the next day and we did some filming at Marble Arch. So just driving the car through the arch and round about and whatever and some pictures, which was rather painful with a big hangover. Um, and we're eternally grateful for Warren Hunt for driving us down to, to London the next day. And it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience for him because I don't think Rich and I were saying too much, <laughs> suffering and popping paracetamols at that point. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's at times like that, you know, and then you, you, know, you get other moments. So obviously there's a court case going on, but, you know, we went to the... Um, uh, the Sports Personality Awards and we sat down there and we got a tap on the shoulder and it's Bernie Eccleston behind us you know saying well done guys and then you go to the the FI prize giving which was in Monaco that year you know you go to the Auth Sport Awards so you've got all these kind of moments that kind of seem to almost like consolidate it or like really bring it to life because at the time I mean, certainly for me, I was one of these types of people that blinkers on at the start of the event and then have a bit of a blowout at the end. Yeah. So um, Richard was much more able to sit down and have a cup of tea at the end of a rally. And, and uh, you know, I think he, he kind of diffused the pressure in different ways than than, than I did. But, you know, it was, it was like a, a decade-long pressure cooker that the steam was let off at the end of at the end of that event and you know these awards dinners and celebrations that happened afterwards were were the the ones that kind of um you know brought it all home how was the atmosphere celebrating with the team at that time given that there's a little bit of sort of not rivalry i think that's too strong a word but there's, there's other factors <laughs> on ongoing so was it quite kind of a strange way to win a world championship i guess yeah, it was a, a little bit. I mean, we went, from memory, we went and had dinner and then Claire, Richard's PA, had organised a limo to take us down in the middle of town and the team were all there. I mean, you know, we had, we had no beef with the team at all. Um, and um, I think the emotions of winning overrode anything else that, that, you know, could have been at the time. And I think there was almost... a a resolve that okay we'll celebrate tonight and then the next phase will start when the next phase starts and looking back at the season again it's another cliche question for you Robert but do you think that was yours of Richard's best year of rallying or were there others that come close to or maybe even better in terms of a season long performance um I suppose it depends how you define it isn't it I mean the you know the the 99 and 2000 we won four events each that year you know in some ways 2003 up until the middle of the year was you know an absolute masterclass in consistency so I I mean yeah yes it is the best because that's what the record books show but I think there were there were other there were other times that were pretty close 
and and how does it feel i guess we touched on it at the start of the podcast but it has been 20 years do you think do you think you'll ever sort of start looking back at it and smiling because it can never be a bad thing to know that you won the world championship you well, achieved what the life well, goal was if you look across here this is the world championship trophy sat on my sideboard do you know i didn't even notice and, that when i came in and, it, and it's got masks and keys and an invitation to the Autosport Awards this year in it. So it's it's where everything gets tossed into when I come in the door. And in some ways that's intentional because it's I want it to be part of everyday life. You know, I don't want it to do something on a pedestal. And I want, looking back at it, I want it to be part of who I am, but not define who I am. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually, because obviously you, you are doing lots of things now with rallying involved, but it's not it's not the only thing you want to be known for, is it? You don't want to no. be just known as the guy that won a world championship and, and, and that's it. Yeah. And and I think, you know, people that know me well often joke that I don't pull the world champion card that often, but when it's necessary I'll do it. Um so, you know, it it's as I say, it it doesn't define who I am. But it's certainly part of what led me to be where I am today. And a popular fan question to conclude. I think a lot of people think that 2001 was possibly the best season the WRC has ever had. It's probably harder for you to answer that because you obviously had a very personal involvement in how things went down. But would you go along with, with that view that it was one of the most entertaining we've ever seen? Yeah, I think I would. And, you know, reflecting on it now, I mean, I think if you have... I mean, in those days, there wasn't many events that there were less than four or five people could win. Um, so if you have a, you know, a whole series of events with a number of different permutations of who can win, um, four drivers going into the, the championship decider being able to, to win the title, I think that's, that's the ultimate of, of what we want to be. You know, the, the right person should always win um, you know, the person who's been fastest during the year. But I think if there's some unknowns in there, and I think I think road order is one of these things that, that gives you that. You know, if you always hand the advantage to the person who's in the lead, you end up in a racing type scenario. You know, you win quali, you start on, on pole. If you always hand somebody who is fastest at the beginning of an event the advantage each day going forward in the event, you end up with big gaps. So certainly small margins um, and lots of people in contention, I think are what makes for an exciting championship. Well, Robert, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you reliving all of that with us and I appreciate the invite into your home to do it as well. It's, it's, been, it's been wonderful. Great, thank you very much.